This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Carl Manchester, 2006. The Autobiography of Mother Jones, by Mary Jones. Chapter 6. War in West Virginia. One night I went with an organiser named Scott to a mining town in the Fairmont district, where the miners had asked me to hold a meeting. When we got off the car, I asked Scott where I was to speak, and he pointed to a frame building. We walked in. There were lighted candles on an altar. I looked around in the dim light. We were in a church, and the benches were filled with miners. Outside the railing of the altar was a table. At one end sat the priest, with the money of the union in his hands. The president of the local union sat at the other end of the table. I marched down the aisle. "'What's going on?' I asked. "'Holding a meeting,' said the president. "'What for?' "'For the union, mother. We rented the church for our meetings.' I reached over and took the money from the priest. Then I turned to the miners. "'Boys,' I said, "'this is a praying institution. You should not commercialise it.' Get up, every one of you, and go out in the open fields. They got up and went out and sat around a field while I spoke to them. The sheriff was there, and he did not allow any traffic to go along the road while I was speaking. In front of us was a schoolhouse. I pointed to it and I said, Your ancestors fought for you to have a share in that institution over there. It's yours. See the school board, and every Friday night hold your meetings there. Have your wives clean it up Saturday morning for the children to enter Monday. Your organisation is not a praying institution. It's a fighting institution. It's an educational institution along industrial lines. Pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. Tom Haggerty was in charge of the Fairmont Field. One Sunday morning, the striking miners of Clarksburg started on a march to Mongolia, getting out the miners in the camps along the way. We camped in the open fields and held meetings on the roadsides and in barns, preaching the gospel of unionism. The Consolidated Coal Company, that owns the little town of New England, forbade the distribution of the notices of our meeting and arrested anyone found with a notice. But we got the news around. Several of our men went into the camp. They went in twos. One pretended he was deaf, and the other kept hollering in his ear as they walked around. Mother Jones is going to have a meeting Sunday afternoon outside the town on the sawdust pile. Then the deaf fellow would ask him what he said, and he would holler to him again. So the word got around the entire camp, and we had a big crowd. When the meeting adjourned, three miners and myself set out for Fairmont City. The miners, Joe Batley, Charlie Blakely, and Barney Rice, walked, but they got a little boy with a horse and buggy to drive me over. I was to wait for the boys just outside the town, across the bridge, just where the interurban car comes along. The little lad and I drove along. It was dark when we came in sight of the bridge, which I had to cross. A dark building stood beside the bridge. It was the coal company's store. It was guarded by gunmen. There was no light on the bridge. And there was none in the store. A gunman stopped us. I could not see his face. "'Who are you?' said he. "'Mother Jones,' said I. "'And a miner's lad.' "'So that's you, Mother Jones,' said he, rattling his gun. "'Yes, it's me,' I said. "'And be sure you take care of the store tonight. "'Tomorrow I'll have to be hunting a new job for you.' 
I got out of the buggy, where the road joins the interurban tracks, just across the bridge. I sent the lad home. When you pass my boys on the road, tell them to hurry up. Tell them I'm waiting just across the bridge. There wasn't a house in sight. The only people near were the gunmen, whose dark figures I could now and then see moving on the bridge. It grew very dark. I sat on the ground, waiting. I took out my watch, lighted a match, and saw that it was about time for the interurban. Suddenly the sound of Murder! Murder! Police! Help! rang out through the darkness. Then the sound of running, and Barney Rice came screaming across the bridge toward me. Blakely followed, running so fast his heels hit the back of his head. Murder! Murder! he was yelling. I rushed towards them. Where's Joe? I asked. They're killing Joe, on the bridge, the gunman. At that moment the interurban car came in sight. It would stop at the bridge. I thought of a scheme. I ran onto the bridge shouting, Joe, Joe, the boys are coming, they're coming. The whole bunch is coming. The car's most here. Those bloodhounds for the coal company thought an army of miners was in the interurban car. They ran for cover, barricading themselves in the company's store. They left Joe on the bridge, his head broken and the blood pouring from him. I tore my petticoat into strips, bandaged his head, helped the boys to get him onto the interurban car, and hurried the car into Fairmont City. We took him to the hotel and sent for a doctor, who sewed up the great open cuts in his head. I sat up all night and nursed the poor fellow. He was out of his head and thought I was his mother. The next night Tom Haggerty and I addressed the union meeting, telling them just what happened. The men wanted to go clean up the gunman, but I told them that would only make more trouble. The meeting adjourned in a body to go see Joe. They went to his room, six or eight of them at a time, until they had all seen him. We tried to get a warrant out for the arrest of the gunman, but we couldn't because the coal company controlled the judges in the courts. Joe was not the only man who was beaten by the gunman. There were many, and the brutalities of those bloodhounds would fill volumes. In Clarksburg, men were threatened with death if they even billed meetings for me. But the railway men billed at a meeting in the dead of night, and I went there alone. The meeting was in the courthouse. The place was packed. The mayor and all the city officials were there. Mr. Mayor, I said, will you kindly chairman for a fellow American citizen? He shook his head. No one would accept my offer. Then, said I, as chairman of the evening, I introduce myself, the speaker of the evening, Mother Jones. The Fairmont field was finally organised to a man. The scabs and the gunmen were driven out. Subsequently, through inefficient organisers, through the treachery of the union's own officials, the unions lost strength. The miners of the Fairmont field were finally betrayed by the very men who were employed to protect their interests. Charlie Batley tried to retrieve the losses, but officers had become corrupt, and men so discouraged that he could do nothing. It makes me sad indeed to think that the sacrifices men and women made to get out from under the iron heel of the gunman were so often in vain, that the victories gained are so often destroyed by the treachery of the workers' own officials, men who themselves knew the bitterness and cost of the struggle. I am old now, and I never expect to see the boys in the Fairmont field again. But I like to think that I have had a share in changing conditions for them and for their children. The United Mine Workers had tried to organise Kelly Creek, 
on the Kanawha River, but without results. Mr. Burke and Tom Lewis, members of the board of the United Mine Workers, decided to go look the field over for themselves. They took the train one night for Kelly Creek. The train came to a high trestle over a steep canyon. Under some pretext, all the passengers except the two union officials were transferred to another coach. The coach uncoupled and pulled across the trestle. The officials were on the trestle in the stalled car. They had to crawl on their hands and knees along the track. Pitch blackness was below them. The trestle was a one-way track. Just as they got to the end of the trestle, a train thundered by. When I heard of the coal company's efforts to kill the union officers, I decided myself to go to Kelly Creek and rouse those slaves. I took a 19-year-old boy, Ben Davis, with me. We walked on the east bank of the Kanawha River, on which Kelly Creek is situated. Before daylight one morning, at a point opposite Kelly Creek, we forded the river. It was just dawn when I knocked on the door of a store run by a man by the name of Marshall. I told him what I had come for. He was friendly. He took me in a little back room where he gave me breakfast. He said if anyone saw him giving food to Mother Jones, he would lose his store privilege. He told me how to get my bills announcing my meeting into the mines by noon, but all the time he was frightened and kept looking out the little window. Late that night, a group of miners gathered about a mile from town between the boulders. We could not see one another's faces in the darkness. By the light of an old lantern, I gave them the pledge. The next day, forty men were discharged, blacklisted. There had been spies among the men the night before, the following night we organised another group, and they were all discharged. This started the fight. Mr. Marshall, the grocery man, got courageous. He rented me his store, and I began holding meetings there. The general manager for the mines came over from Columbus, and he held a meeting too. Shame, he said, to be led away by an old woman. Hurrah for Mother Jones, shouted the miners. The following Sunday, I held a meeting in the woods. The general manager, Mr. Jack Rowan, came down from Columbus on his special car. I organised a parade of the men that Sunday. We had every miner with us. We stood in front of the company's hotel and yelled for the general manager to come out. He did not appear. Two of the company's lapdogs were on the porch. One of them said, I'd like to hang that old woman to a tree. Yes, said the other and I'd like to pull the rope. On we marched to our meeting place under the trees. Over a thousand people came, and the two lapdogs came snivelling along too. I stood up to speak, and I put my back to a big tree, and pointing to the curs, I said, You said that you would like to hang this old woman to a tree. Well, here's the old woman, and here's the tree. Bring along your rope, and hang her. And so the union was organised in Kelly Creek. I do not know whether the men have held the gains they wrested from the company. Taking men into the Union is just the kindergarten of their education, and every force is against their further education. Men who live up those lonely creeks have only the mine owners' YMCAs, the mine owners' preachers and teachers, the mine owners' doctors and newspapers to look to for their ideas, so they don't get many. End of chapter 6